I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Yay, welcome. Welcome. We are outside of Lauren's new house. Yay. The address is... Hey. One. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> no more. No more. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, good. I'm wearing my coat because it's a bit cold in here. Yeah, it's a bit cold. We can't yeah. have the heat on. It's too noisy. Yeah. And then we also went for a run as well, didn't we? Yeah. So just, yeah, it was pretty warm, really cold. Yeah. New Year's fitness regime. Yeah. Do you want to tell the listeners what you picked up from after your run that was really exciting? Or do you want to save that for another time? Did I pick up? We've said it now, so I feel like I need to mention it. No, but you can always cut this out. Okay. <laughs> I actually have two things that I need to tell our listeners about. Oh, wow. How None exciting. of which are sponsoring us, but mm. the two things that I'm very excited about. Number one is my Lomi, which is my electric composting machine. Okay. Do I believe that my household composting is really going to turn the tides in this climate crisis? No. However, household food waste does upset me. So I got this thing, it's called a Lomi, and it's basically like a kind of big white container and I stick all my food stuff. So banana peels, eggshells, coffee grounds, meat, whatever, not whatever. It won't take whatever, but it will take a lot of stuff. It will also take certain compostable items. So like cups, like coffee cups, it also takes some of those. That's cool. Wow. So you whack that all in there, hit the button. Five hours later, I have like compost, like soily compost. That's amazing. It's incredible. It's so fun. All I want to do is feed my lomi. <laughs> I'm just, I'm losing a lot of weight because I'm just half eating stuff. And <laughs> it's time to feed the lomi. Nice. It's so good. And you are going to get a composting, a compost bin and put your household waste in it. Yeah. Not household waste, household kitchen waste. Yeah. And I'm going to take it and feed my lomi with it. That's cool. And in return, what did you get today? I got some soil. Got back. <laughs> for my plant that I need to repot. Yes. Yeah, it's so exciting. It's so good. I love it. Yeah. So anyways, they're not sponsoring us. I just think it's really great. Lomi dot something. Yeah, it's a great idea. We'll put Lomi details in the show notes for yeah. all our listeners that are interested. Get, get two, get three, get some for your friends. They're really expensive. The price point is prohibitive. I did get mine brand new, but second hand. So I saved a fucking ton of money. Yeah. But it's awesome. And possibly if demand is driven up, they might bring the price down. Yeah. So, yeah, it's great. Lomi, we are very happy to create and be part of your affiliate program. So yes. give us a discount code and we'll share it with our vast listeners. Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing I'm very excited about, mm. which we did pick up before we started Yay. recording, is an app called Too Good To... Go. go. <laughs> Too Good To Go is an app. It's almost click and collect for food that's about to be thrown out. So it's stuff that's like today is the sell by date and the place is about to close and they know they're not going to sell it. So instead of throwing it out, again, food waste, you can reserve it, pay for it in advance and you can go and pick it up. So I did it for a place last night and picked it up for my dinner. But what I got was like a baba ganoush wrap and then a roasted aubergine wrap. I got two wraps, normally valued at like 15 pounds, spent three pounds on two wraps. I'm never going to eat because I don't eat aubergine. Oh, that's the bad left side <laughs> of it. If you, you don't know what you're going to get. So, yeah. yeah. 
However, all of that is made up for by today. We went to a place, I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to be a white supremacist and keep it all for myself. We went to a coffee shop, picked up a magic bag. That's what they're called, magic bags. We got a fucking ass load of stuff. I spent four pounds on this bag. It had a massive, what did you have? I had like a brie croissant sandwich, brie and basil. It's really good. So much cheese. It was huge. Yeah, really massive. And then I had a pastrami and mustard and pickle on a chia butter. Mm. Really good. But then I also had an almond croissant in there. I had a, another breakfast egg, vegetarian egg breakfast croissant thing. I had a sausage sandwich. A sausage sandwich. And I had a an egg cup thing. An egg, a massive egg cup thing. <laughs> they handed me the bag and I was like, doof. Yeah, the bag was full. <laughs> it was really great. Such a variety of things. And I think also things that you'd want to eat. Yeah. I said, I always wondered if it was like odd, obscure things that people would never really want. But in this bag was everything you would want to eat. A sausage sandwich, cheese and pickle. Yeah. It was a nice... Objectively me, my opinion. There was no cheese and pickle. Stop making stuff up. Sorry. You don't need to make it sensational. No, but I thought the one had cheese, pickle and other things. Pastrami. Pastrami, yeah. yeah. Pastrami is the hero in that sandwich, I'd say. Yeah, so too good to go. Check that one out. Again, they're not sponsoring us, but I think it's a really great thing. Yeah, really great. And then it calculates how many magic bags you've received, but then it also calculates how much... I think it also calculates your sort of carbon emission stuff. And what happens if it calculates how many magic bags you've had? CO2 saved. Do you get like a prize or... Why does everything need to be a competition with prizes now? you what's a assist? Look, so here's what I've saved. I've saved... Five kilograms, which equals 12 kilowatts of European grid electricity, 884 smartphone charges, wow. 44 cups of coffee, 16 minutes of showering time, wow. heated by an electric boiler with normal shower head. <laughs> Five kilograms. I think per person, it's six kilograms to travel on the Eurostar. Yeah, wow. You've almost saved a Eurostar trip. Almost. Yeah, I think I, I can put- offset. <laughs> I will eat my carbon emissions in Eurostar. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think I put, I'd put those five kilograms on my ass, but there we go. Take them from... Wait, no. Oh, I was sure I had a drum roll there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Save the planet. Yeah. Cool. Let that big butt grow. Really? <laughs> So, yeah, we are. The downsides are you end up with a lot of food that you need to eat. We run today. It's fine. That's right. Running every day. But you can also get groceries. There's bubble tea time. Oh, my God. Collect today at 5.30. Should we go? There's one left. (laughs) It becomes addictive. I'm really interested in the grocery side of things. Yeah. As long as it's not like just their sandwich section, as long as it's like bigger than that although one of them it's the sushi section yeah so that's five times fast sushi section one sushi section okay so anyways those are my new things that I'm very excited about my low me my electric composting because I just don't have the facilities to compost in the slow way yeah I have tried to do that in a flat and it just leads to mud and worms everywhere yeah hectic that does sound hectic and too good to go yeah check it out Tia's list of favorite things. Whoop.
All right. What are we talking about today? Can I say that one of my new favorite things? No one cares. Just kidding. Go ahead. Oh, just Lil Vac is really sweet. Your Lil Vac. Yes. Okay. So I just got, I just want a big shout out to Lil Vac. So I got That's like, it is. I got a little vacuum that robot that goes around and cleans up on its own or it does its hoovering by itself. <laughs> and I named it Lil Vac. <laughs> so I get little messages sometimes where it says Lil Vac stuff. <laughs> or a little back can't get out or something like that and I'm like, is this, ah. this is your equivalent of a tamagotchi yeah yeah and i'm like what's happened and it's sucked up the end of the rug or something and i'm like oh so, you yeah. have a vacuum appliance that is very akin to your own personality <laughs> wild just gets stuck in weird places sucks things up needs help redoes the same space 15 times <laughs> you know, lost on its way home exactly people get like pets that look like them <laughs> Yeah, this is like the modern version. <laughs> Love Fun. it. Anyway, okay. Was... Shout out to Lil Vac. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. What are we talking about today then? Feminist. Foreign. Oh, Australian. Feminist. Foreign. Policy. Whoa. I don't know why that had to be the sound for it, but it was. And the button was pink. What does that mean? Nothing. What does that mean, Lauren? <laughs> nothing. Eh? Nothing. Oh. Nothing. I'm I leaving all that in. Totally revealed. Like I'm leaving a hidden subconscious association with the color pink. In. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me. What's feminist foreign policy? What's foreign policy? Yeah. Let's start with what's a foreign policy, which I actually find an intimidating phrase. <clears throat> I've just like that whole kind of political space. Like it's a, there's a foreign policy or whatever. I'm like, what is that? I always thought of intimidating. No. It was just me, anyway. Do you find the word policy intimidating? I didn't really understand it as much until, yeah, I started actually measuring it and looking at it in detail. For this podcast? No, not for this for, podcast. In your work? Like in my life, yeah. I was going to yeah. say, you've done a fair amount in yeah. the policy and advocacy space. Yes, yes. Okay. But until I started working in it, I felt like it was a bit more of an abstract thing. Okay. And I think that's partly because what what the government changes hasn't necessarily, and this is a massive privileged piece, hasn't always impacted me massively because, yeah, so, you because know, what? because I'm a white woman. There it is. In the UK, so I think that there's an important, <laughs> there we go. But it's an important acknowledgement that I think like until policies affect you and they are the marginalized and discriminated against more often than not. Well, I think it takes longer for a policy to affect you when in the title it is foreign. Yeah, that, but in general. But domestic policy would significantly impact you. For example, domestic economic policy. Yeah, which is, yeah. You complain about constantly, like the oldest person in the world. <laughs> okay. Anyway, foreign policy is a term used to describe a country's interactions with other countries. They're there to protect national interests. They're often economic, military or cultural interests. Often have a predetermined association with economic and military interests. Yes. Yeah. That's it, really. So then a feminist... Sorry, and you found that intimidating. Not when it's... (laughs) But this is... I think as an abstract term, definitely. Okay. Yeah, and so a feminist foreign policy... Yes is attempting to be more equitable and acknowledge women in foreign policy. Shall I give you the official... Yes, please. ...definition as per the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy? Yes, please. Okay. 
A feminist foreign policy is a political framework centered around the well-being of marginalized people and invokes processes of self-reflection regarding foreign policies, hierarchical global systems. A feminist foreign policy takes a step outside the black box approach of traditional foreign policy thinking and its focus on military force, violence and domination by offering an alternative and intersectional rethinking of security from the viewpoint of the most vulnerable. It is a multidimensional policy framework that aims to elevate women's and marginalized groups experiences and agency to scrutinize the destructive forces of patriarchy, colonization, heteronormativity, capitalism, racism, imperialism and military the end that's really complicated is it we're complex i think yeah but like in a good way like it it covers the power dynamics do you mean comprehensive sorry i meant i meant yeah sorry okay i meant comprehensive what did i say complex comprehensive totally i think that's really comprehensive Yes. Because when I was looking at definitions for feminist foreign policy and how people have used it and applied it is very much focused on women and like kind of the gender equality piece or represented how they want to apply gender equality work in their policies. So, yeah. But that, I think, brings in a more intersectional lens, which I think is something maybe we can discuss now or in a bit is a criticism of how a lot of people have applied a feminist foreign policy. Okay. Yeah, so for example, so Sweden brought in a feminist foreign policy in 2014. Repeat after me. Yog. No, why? Just repeat after me. No. Yog. No, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to make me say. So the 2014 Swedish foreign policy contained... Repeat after me. Stop it. Small. Three, three R's. Grudena. <laughs> Stop it. I was about to sing. I was going to get you to sing a song in <laughs> Swedish. Okay. Just about a little frog. Aw, what happens to the little frog? It just jumps around, I think. <laughs> small grudena, small grudena. <laughs> okay. All right. Shout out to all our Swedish listeners. <laughs> yes. So therefore, policy has three R's. Rights, representation and resources for women and funding. Okay. So it was like very much targeted to that group. Okay. Other countries that have adopted feminist policies? Have adopted what? Have <laughs> <laughs> adopted feminist foreign policies? Yes. Are? Canada? Yes. Is this a quiz? Yeah. Go. Mexico? Yeah. The United Kingdom? Whoa. Does it? No. I've got adopted or planned. So some okay. of these are planned. Yeah. Yeah. Sweden, Canada, Mexico and the United Kingdom are what I have in my notes. If you... Or a government representative of any other country with a feminist foreign policy, let us know. <laughs> I've got also Spain, Luxembourg, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium. Sexy. But some of these possibly planned. Okay. And within that, many have established like handbooks, advisory bodies, accountability frameworks, even indicators. Nice. Yeah. So really trying to establish. Who's the one who had one but got rid of this? Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. Oh, dear. I take my song back. But the thing about Sweden is, like, on my research, there's quite good lessons learned research out there in terms of how they started to apply their feminist foreign policy. And apparently it led to a notable boost in aid spending on gender equality. Nice. It helped them shape their approach to diplomatic negotiations and global initiatives on women's rights. Okay. Although there was a lot of criticism that it was a lot of rhetoric and a lack of accountability to citizens and feminist groups. Shocking. A government? Rhetoric? Lack of accountability? No. Yeah. Heavens to <laughs> So, there we go. Okay. Sweden. Yeah. Oh. 
But I think so. In the absence of a feminist feminist foreign policy, now what do they do? Just go butt wild doing dude stuff. I don't know, <laughs> but because that's there, there is a there is an argument to be made that why does something need to be labeled as a feminist foreign policy if ultimately what you're doing are those components within it? Then if that's just your foreign policy full stop then it's not there's nothing novel about it necessarily yeah and this is exactly that what some of the research also said and criticisms of these kinds of policies is that as the integration versus its standalone piece and maybe for countries like sweden norway netherlands uk there can be some wider integration i don't know i was thinking about the us and how it's such a kind of military centered it's very like defense oriented a lot of its policies right how does the feminist policy piece if it were to have one integrate with those kinds of policies and i wonder if the us that would be more stark than let's say maybe sweden but i don't Mm. know i was just curious hillary clinton once talked about like the three d approach which is diplomacy defense and development Mm. is like a way forward about how you bring all of these three things together Mm. so that we stop being viewed as like a kind of militarized where like a military intervention is our first focus hrod hit me up if i've summarize that incorrectly you're always welcome on the podcast for me when i think about feminist foreign policy i think about it as like really more heavily weighting the diplomacy end of it versus thinking about like how it integrates with the military part of it so the defense part of it because it's looking at the perspective of if we use the center for feminist foreign policies definition of it yeah they're looking at they're looking at foreign interaction, foreign interactions. That's what it's called, right? They're looking at like international interactions and security from the perspective of vulnerable groups, which I do think is a kind of a better approach. I think it makes more sense if we viewed the pandemic from the perspective of people who had less or more limited or no access to vaccinations. If we looked at it through their eyes and delivered our foreign policy from their perspective, you'd reconceive of it in a different way. There'd be more equitable access to vaccinations, right? If you looked at it through a different lens. Yeah, that's very true. Same with the refugee crisis, right? You can assume that if you just secure your borders, that everything's going to be fine and you can do whatever you want as far afield as you like. But the actions that you take may be perpetuating a crisis that you're eventually going to have to deal with. So if you view your policy from the lens of somebody else as opposed to what you need to make yourself safe, think about what you need to make somebody else feel safe and operate from that lens, which I quite like. It's almost like the feminist foreign foreign policies need to advance in that direction in a way. I think that's what it's meant to be. I think it speaks of the liberal feminist narratives and intersectional feminist narratives. Oh, okay. But I I found it fairly interesting. Can you explain what all of that means first? Yeah, of course. So the liberal feminist narratives are advocating for an increase in promotion of women in existing... An increased what? Presence and promotion of women in institutions, supporting legal reform for gender, women's human rights and the success of individual women. Cool. That's, I think, like why I've seen it in a lot of like Sweden, for example. Yeah. And the intersectional lens is the gender equality between women, men and non-binary persons and social justice among people of different race, ethnicity, class and other social markers. So very much leaning more to that kind of... So one is about bringing women to the table. Yes. One is about equity between everyone. Yes, exactly. Isn't that not... Are they not 
the same. Maybe. I don't know. Because, for example, if I'm taking an intersectional approach, that kind of catches the idea of equity for everyone. Because that would necessarily include bringing more women to the table. An intersectional approach, yes. So why is there two different ones? The liberal one is like advocating for women. It seems like only women. Like women in existing institutions, supporting legal reform for gender equality, women's human rights and the success of individual women. But And then intersectional feminists' narratives stand for gender equality between women, men and non-binary persons. So maybe it's the relationship between them rather than an individual group. I don't know. I still feel like if you took an intersectional approach... Intersectional feminism captures that first one. Liberal feminism seems to be leaving people out. But there's also different types of feminism, right? Like feminism is always used in a singular term as if there's only one version of feminism when it should actually be feminisms. Yes. So maybe they feel the need to make a distinction. Yeah. Anyway, that was by Zakova et al. 2021. We'll put it in the show notes. All right, Zakova et al. (laughs) (laughs) So... We've talked a little bit about these policies, but are they fit for purpose? How do we know they're working? Why did Sweden drop it? Why? I don't know, actually. Other than like the the new government that decided it wasn't really a priority. But other than that, I don't know. I think that it can be really threatening to put the word feminist in front of something. I think if you are a man of a certain age and maybe some women of a certain age, you're understanding of how feminisms and their evolution Mm. may make it more challenging word or concept to get behind. I think that's a good, yes. I think that like when people hear the word feminism, they think like pussy riot or something. Do you know what I mean? They think they've got this concept of people wearing vagina hats and screaming about how much they hate men. Yeah. And that group of people very well may be in there. And there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But I do think that people feel very much, can feel threatened by the concept of like feminist foreign policy and what it, their misconceptions about what that might mean when really it's an adoption of pluralism. It's reprioritizing priorities. Yes. It's an emphasis on vulnerable and marginalized and unheard communities yes as a means of securing national interest in a different way yeah. like i think that you can achieve what you want in your national ambitions in the same exact way and potentially in a more expeditious way by considering vulnerable and marginalized groups differently think about the migrant and refugee crisis in the states like we've been doing the same old fucking bullshit walls don't work throwing little kids in jail doesn't work like we need to be thinking about it from a completely different perspective yeah holding people in third countries doesn't work like why let's try thinking about our foreign policy in a different way from the perspective of somebody else and what they might need to be secure and building longer-term strategies to achieve that yeah absolutely and some of those things i think the other- for president of the world whoa <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Why are you laughing like that? Step up. I'm waiting. You need to help Sweden get their (laughs) policy back. I don't think they need... It doesn't matter what it's called. As long as it does what it needs to. 
So the OECD also looked at Sweden's foreign policy to look at why it worked. Okay. They said... The OECD being... The OECD being the... I know you don't know that. <laughs> the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Right. One reason, they report one reason for its success was that it was integrated across their Ministry for Foreign Affairs. So it wasn't just the women's work? Yeah. They... A couple of things that they like attribute change to from this policy is that the EU's free trade agreement with Chile has an entire chapter on gender equality for the first time, thanks to Sweden's involvement in it. Chile, yeah, Chile. Oh yeah, maybe Chile. Mm. I don't know exactly. I don't actually know because I rarely say that country's name. Oh, rude. Chile or Chile? Hello, Chilean listeners. Apologies. Sorry. Sweden was a founding member of the She Decides Global Movement. Okay. Supports the rights of girls and women. They also introduced the hashtag Wikigap campaign to enhance the information about women on Wikipedia around the world. So yeah, lots of things that apparently are attributed to the policy okay. that Sweden took a lead in. But I guess what also I found was acknowledgement that there's not really any comparison because no one else has really gone to the level of implementation. You don't have a control. Group. Yeah, yeah, there's less acknowledgement of other policies impact. Like people aren't necessarily doing evaluations. Call us. <laughs> on their- Call us all the countries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like on their attempts at doing this kinds of policy. But here's a question. When you're searching for something like that, mm. this is under the assumption that it's under the feminist foreign policy banner. Yeah, but they are called other things. Or like gender equality st- has also been used. But point is, could it not be hidden under something else? It mm. does serves the same purpose, but isn't called gender, isn't called feminist, isn't called any of those things, but it's called something else, but it serves the same purpose. Yeah, it's a good shout. Just what could it be called? Asking for a friend. I don't know. I haven't formed my government yet. <laughs> Give me a minute. Well, um, okay. Yeah. Or like the extent to which maybe they've signed up to or ratified something or something around the SDGs that may be delivered through that as a, an approach, but it's just not called that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just wondering. It'd be nice to see some more research like that. This feels like an interesting side project for you. Possibly, Yeah. <laughs> Who's paying? Which country? <laughs> do some pro bono. For <laughs> Canada. <laughs> you could do some pro bono for OECD. <laughs> but look, I noticed some gaps in your shit. Yeah, I could do that for all their shit. Ooh. <laughs> Hard oh dear. burn. Oh dear. You're going to get your phone tapped in a minute. I know. Surely they have that control. No. I've got a report from the International Centre for Research on Women has some criticisms or has or had some criticisms of Sweden's feminist foreign policy. Okay, watch out. Maybe that's why they got rid of it. They will stop being so critical. Maybe. (laughs) This is back in 2019. They said that despite having that policy, they continued arms trades with countries with poor human and women's rights records, such as Saudi Arabia. There was a binary focus on women rather than gender. Okay. Not enough attention on the rights of LGBTQ individuals beyond health-related sexual reproductive rights. No overarching monitoring of the policy or clear documentation of the amount of funding given. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the Chatham House article, the mm. one that said or was called, is it fit for purpose? Yes. Yeah. I don't know if that was an event you went to or a talk. Or I didn't go to that event. I couldn't read the article because you had to. Because <laughs> oh, you're not a member. <laughs> but, Loser. <laughs> but it did. I did see one line that was about a foreign, a feminist foreign policy 2.0, which said, 
it would have less of a gendered focus, broader fairness and better alignment with domestic policy. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Which is their call for change in that area. All right. That's what I've got, really. Okay. So do we want them or? <laughs> yeah. Are they? Here's a question I have. How can you say feminist foreign po- How can you have the question feminist foreign policy fit for purpose? In a space where these are just actions that people should be taking anyways. That's mm-hmm. what I don't understand. I think it's also like, how can you ask the question, is it fit for purpose when we don't really know what it's done or not done? Like there are documentations around like some of the impact and changes it's made, but I don't know. I feel like you're, you would be interrogating it as a standalone thing as opposed to a thing with roots in everything. Do you see what I mean? Like, it feels hard to say, is this policy fit for purpose, as opposed to just saying, is your foreign policy working? Do you know what I mean? Like, why do Mm -hmm. we have to challenge it as a feminist foreign policy? Wouldn't we just be like, your foreign policy is not effective for doing this? Yes. As opposed to, like, why do we need to make it about a feminist thing? Is your foreign policy addressing feminist issues no no not even if is it addressed nothing about feminism okay okay take feminism out of it this is my whole point is why are we having a critique of whether or not feminist foreign policy is fit for purpose because surely it's just a critique about how you're engaging with the world yeah and indeed potentially a conversation between your domestic and foreign policy spaces Do you see what I mean? Yeah, definitely. But I'm just wondering if until you get to the point where that becomes standard, because it's not, do you need to name it? Do you need to name it to to make people recognize it and then you get rid of it? Not at the expense of making it more palatable for anxious white men. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yeah, but yes, I do see what you mean. Yes. Really. If we had fewer insecure white men in positions of leadership, then we would just be adopting a foreign policy that did X, Y, Z versus having to say, this is a feminist foreign policy, everyone. Check it out. Here's yeah. why it's different. As opposed to just saying, this is our foreign policy. These are the things it includes. And I'd be interested to know how much of the quote-unquote feminist part of the foreign policy is still within that's a really good study right like how much are they doing now versus how much they were doing before because now they don't have it yeah so you could potentially see the efficacy of a feminist quote-unquote feminist approach and not but i suspect a fair whack of things is still in there somewhere yeah Especially because they've been and doing it and started it. So people are already... It's already business as usual. Yeah, yeah. Potentially, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'd be curious to... Yeah, it's just really nice to have a comparative of how other countries are approaching it, really. You just need to... Let's compare Sweden before and after. Yeah. Yes. I think that's a really good one. There is one article here that talks about tension between policies that treat feminism and gender equality as a priority objective. That's the rights-based objective. What does that mean? So the objective of the policy is to get to gender equality. Yes. Versus policies that treat gender equality as a tool to advance all other foreign policy objectives. One's called rights-based and one's called instrumental. Okay. So, yeah, in summary. So, in summary, I've never hated you more. <laughs> why? I need just time to think about that. You mm. never need time to think about. That's why I always ask you to do the in summary. I'm finding it difficult to summarize this one because I don't know. I don't know if there's any clarity on what the impact of it is. 
and or yeah okay i'm finding it difficult to summarize because it's hard to determine like if we go back to the question of is it fit for purpose my opinion is that asking if it's fit for purpose is about as useful as asking if your foreign policy is fit for purpose like it shouldn't matter that it's feminist a feminist policy or not if the foundational pieces of a feminist foreign policy already exist within your space. But if there is benefit to be gained by labeling a feminist foreign policy, for example, for notoriety among international people, for I guess there's potentially an argument for like the accuracy of what it is and drawing a distinction that this is unique and this is why and therefore more things should be feminist, which... I mean, to a certain extent, we do when we say that we adopt a feminist approach to our work. Does it matter? Should we not just do our work in these ways anyways? I think it's easier to label it because it's easy for people to understand what we mean when we say it. But we are also, we're not working in an international diplomatic space, so it's different. If we're following the definition that the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy is using, and that it's about dismantling patriarchy, heteronormativity, cisnormativity, racism, capitalism, how do you do that with all your foreign policy? Because you will have countries that are notoriously patriarchal. You have many countries that are very, that reinforce heteronormativity at the demise of anything else. So I wonder how your foreign policy does in those spaces, if that's the that's one definition that's being applied to foreign policy. Mm. Yeah, I think there's some countries who are applying it more as a channel to deliver humanitarian development funding, especially like gender equality funding. And that's how the policy is essentially that. And funding that's driving like, yeah, programs centered at women. Sure. But if you label your policy as a feminist foreign policy and you say, I, we have, we country, whatever, have a feminist foreign policy and you're engaged in a diplomatic dialogue with X country that supports the murder and execution of trans people, how does, how are you still calling that a feminist foreign policy? Like, how does that work in a diplomatic space? How do you engage in that space when you're calling it something very specific when there's, again, some of the things we talked about before, but ideological incompatibility from a foreign policy perspective? But maybe the foreign policy is the umbrella, which you're right, I've often associated as having a diplomatic role. But maybe in some cases with the application of this policy, it's not about the diplomacy. It's just about like the funding channel. So how, for example, that one of the criticisms was like Sweden has a policy that has lots of things that are feminist related, but still is able to work with Saudi Arabia or get arms from Saudi Arabia. Like those two, it's said, continuing arms trade with countries with poor human and women's rights records, such as Saudi Arabia. I still have a question of where feminist foreign policy interacts with the foreign policy of others. But actually, the answer is probably just that. It's like your foreign policy stops the second you interact with another country. Right. I can persuade you to I can use a number of different tools and approaches, both soft and hard to get you to think the way that I would like you to think. But the extent to which I'm writing your foreign policy is not is not a thing. Mm. Right. So I can do whatever I want up until the line that it gets to your space and then it's up to whatever's happening in your space. And then a bit of that trade off if you are able to. 
So really, feminist foreign policy is really just for your own constituents and your own consumption. Yeah, it feels a little bit just like a name on a paper when you describe it like that. What sorry, what does a foreign policy diplomat do? I don't think there's a foreign policy diplomat. It's well, okay. Your diplomats enact your foreign policy. So I decide how we're going to interact with I being whatever state work with a number of different pieces of information or sources of intelligence to determine what policy I want to take on a number of different things. The diplomats will go out and they'll always be working towards advancing or maintaining a particular policy. So they're like little microphones for whatever the policy is. But they also give intelligence back to help shape policy. Okay, but I still don't understand what they do. So yes, there's a policy and they're a voice piece, but what does that mean? Does it mean you set up meetings with the whoever and you encourage and you like campaign and champion for whatever? Yeah. Like what actually? It depends on what like what your role is. But you might be having meetings, you might be, what is it, Voice for America is a kind of very long-standing soft power mechanism which is a radio station on american mm, stuff yeah? yeah so that's one thing that kind of reinforces in subtle ways mm. america's views on things i did an evaluation of that in eritrea there you go and see Ethiopia. so there's that there's voice of america there's like a number of different ways that mm. foreign policy can be actioned and reinforced but Ultimately, it's individual people who are delivering those things, having conversations, forcing positions. They might be lobbying mm. on the side. They might be working with academics in particular countries to help. It depends. So you could have, there's multiple ways if you adopt a multi-track diplomacy approach. There's multiple different ways that diplomacy is enacted by diplomats and by other people. So you can put your own policy onto another country? You can influence it, potentially, in a number of different ways. But that's what I'm saying. It's like my foreign policy stops where yours begins. Yeah, it's why I'm asking. Because I guess then I don't really understand like what a feminist foreign policy is. Because if, you know, how I've understood like feminism and feminist approaches to be is like challenging power dynamics and whatever. So like how I'm imagining someone going into a meeting with a particular, I don't know, complex context is really complicated having a meeting with the ministry of whoever there. And you know, what's feminist about it? Is it that, you, that in that meeting you're saying we need to bring in more women's voices to this policy meeting or that we need to partner with this women's academic university and have them do some research so that we can advance whatever this issue is, for example. Yeah. Okay, that's really helpful. It could be all of that, yeah. So I guess then... I don't so I don't know like none of that I found in the my research on feminist foreign policy and I think that slightly confused my understanding of this because it wasn't the research or at least what I've looked at didn't feel like it was a reflection of external relations it felt like it was a reflection of internal relations and how people receive the policy or what global changes have happened about the policy that don't necessarily sit within a particular country context. What do you mean? Oh, that so, last bit? like global campaigns or like wiki like campaigns or getting women initiatives set up across 
like global networks and influencing platforms. So that's influencing within it. So there's subnational influencing versus national influencing. Yeah. So on maybe more of a regional global level versus in a particular context, for example. Okay. I don't think you'd see bilateral influencing. I don't think you'd see something like that. But I just said about them asking for women to come to meetings and stuff. But this, but you said you didn't see anything in your research, right? Yes. So I'm saying I don't think you would see that. Okay, why? <laughs> How often do you see the meetings of diplomats? Not me personally, but is there any kind of, I don't know, how do people know whether foreign policies are working or not? Like, what's the impact measurement there? That's a different question. Yeah. You're yeah. asking a very different question, right? Sure. So I don't think you would see something like that because you see it in, because it would ideally be in more subtle ways, like bilateral influencing, I think you wouldn't necessarily see because it's like most types of diplomacy is you don't see the workings of it generally because it's usually not helpful for that to be out. Right. Like if I'm trying to negotiate something with you, do I want everybody to know that I'm negotiating with you on something? Yeah. No. Unless be the outcome is good for whatever reason. No, then you don't want it to see, like you. We only want visibility on a diplomatic discussion if we already know the outcome is going to be advantageous to both of us. Mm -hmm. If we're in a diplomatic negotiation or a diplomatic dialogue, you don't want other people to see that because other people start influencing the calculations that you're making. The more people that get involved in the mix, the harder it is because now you're balancing different types of, the technical word for it is soft balancing, but you're trying to balance different mm -hmm. types of perspectives and views so that you can, so that you don't come out the loser, right? Like you're what you're trying to do is work towards win-win solutions unless you believe in zero-sum game theory, in which case you just want yourself to win because you want the other person to lose or the other person winning means you lose, so you don't want that, right? So that's often why a lot of diplomacy happens quietly and why people don't want to share about it. Think about hostage negotiations, you never hear about hostage negotiations as they're happening. And so that's why you probably wouldn't see that kind of bilateral influencing on, on a feminist agenda because you don't want people to feel like they need to, I don't know, like if I was trying to get, if I was trying to get like a hardcore misogynist to do something that was like prioritizing women, I wouldn't want to expose that person to these kinds of conversations because they might just ingrain themselves further in their viewpoints. Yeah, I can see that definitely. And that makes sense. But I think that makes sense, yeah, on a diplomatic level as to what people can and can't see. And yeah, it's very under the radar, which then maybe brings us back around to it's very hard to come to a conclusion on a, this feminist foreign policy because so much of it is hidden or so much of what is or isn't working or conversations or how it might be manifested in certain ways. I, I don't know and will not be privileged to know. I think it's like how whether any influencing thing works is mm. it just takes time to see it and yeah. it takes time to know to what it should be attributed to. Right. If any single thing, which probably it's not on some of these issues, right? It's going to take a long time if part of a feminist foreign policy approach is like challenging capitalism. That's going to take a really long time. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so sure. you probably wouldn't see some of that or you'd see this is probably where your fusion analysis starts coming in you'd see drip you'd see tiny breadcrumbs of evidence along generation i don't know i obviously i think it's really important to call things what they are if it's advantageous to the ultimate goal 
But at the end of the day, I don't necessarily think I care what it's called as long as it's doing the things that I believe are right. Yes. I don't know. That That's... feels like a very strong values led feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. Goodbye. All right. Should we end on that? Yeah. Okay. I don't really want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> Whatever. Spoken to you all day. <laughs> it was really helpful to unpack like the different parts of policies. <sighs> For me and listeners. Good. You're making assumptions about their feelings, so don't do that. <laughs> Love you, listeners. Whatever. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I'm oh, we can actually do something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this has been a Feminist Journey to Transformation jokes. How is that different from any other Journey to Transformation? <laughs> Lauren Burroughs. There we go. All Bye. Right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burroughs. Our music comes from Praz Canal.